stuff. So I've, I was bummed out about something. I don't remember the context, but I remember getting one of those yellow sticky notes, and I, you know, I wrote on it, go away, nobody loves me, and I put it on my door. You know, and so, you know, the, the intended point was not for anyone to go away, right? I wanted my mom to come and play with me or console me or something, but I was trying to use self-pity to manipulate her into getting her to do what I wanted, right? To make her feel sorry for me so that she would do what I wanted. Self-pity is a form of false humility. The Catholic mystic Thomas Merton called it hellish humility. It masks itself as humility. It pretends to be humble, but it's really a form of wounded pride, wounded self-love meant to elicit the response of flattery, to draw somebody in as you air your past wounds to your pride. We live in a victim culture with everyone out competing each other for higher victim status, as in the intersectionality, right? We, we have a scorecard, and we can rate who is the higher victim. So it is common for us to make self-pity into a virtue. Saul, in our text this morning, as we continue in our series through 1 Samuel, picking up at chapter 22, verse 6, Saul is feeling very sorry for himself. He is like Eeyore, woe is me, only life would be better, then I would be happy. Um, And he complains and he groans and he lays out his concerns to his troops. And he uses self-pity to manipulate his troops into getting them to do what he wants. And his self-pity leads to the treachery of Doeg. Doeg is an opportunist. He is there at the right moment, and he seizes that moment to advance his own cause, to excel in the ranks of Saul's army, or just to uh, gain favor with Saul himself. But each of these men, Saul and Doeg, give us a picture of what God has built into the fabric of the world, and that is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so as we look this morning to this text, we're going to see the ways that God opposes Saul and Doeg, and the ways that we ought to be cultivating instead humility and contentment. So let's turn together to 1 Samuel chapter 22, and we'll pick up at verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. And Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height, with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul. 
I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for you, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we give you thanks for this, your word. We ask that you'd come, as we come to this text, that you would humble us and teach us to be content. Help us to spot foolish pride and self-pity that leads to this kind of treachery. We ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive this word. We pray in Christ's name and amen. So you can picture the scene. Saul is there with his men. He's on the top of a hill. He's under a tamarisk tree and he is sitting in judgment as the king. And his troops are all gathered around him. And he's got his trusty spear in his hand. He seems to always get in trouble when he has his spear in his hand. And he begins to complain. Is Jesse, is the son of Jesse going to give you guys land and vineyards? Is he going to make you the commander of an army like I can? That none of you tells me that my own son has made a covenant with him? None of you feel sorry for me? Do you know what I have to go through? This man is trying to strip the kingdom from me. And here you all sit. And he knows. He knows that somebody knows something 
right? David, it says in verse 1 or verse 6, has been discovered. And the men who were with him. Now remember what happened last week. That they that David had fled from Jonathan. They made a covenant together. Jonathan had told them, look, I don't think my father has anything against you. And they devised this test to determine if Saul meant David harm. And they found out the truth. And so Jonathan said, you need to go. And David fled. And in its time of great desperation, not knowing where to turn, he goes to Ahimelech. Right? He goes to the priests of the Lord, naturally. But instead of inquiring of the Lord, instead of drawing Ahimelech in to what's happening to him, he deceives him. And he gets bread because God, in the midst of that, is still providing for him. And he takes provisions from Ahimelech. But remember, Doeg, the Edomite, was there. And the narrator makes note of that. And Doeg is an opportunist. An opportunist is somebody who is looking for opportunities to seize them, and they will not let anything get in their way. Now, we're going to talk about Doeg in a minute, but I want to focus on Saul, the beginning of this. See, self-pity, as I mentioned, is an artfully disguised form of pride. John Piper says this in one of his books called Future Grace. He says, the reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be needy. But the need arises from a wounded ego. And the desire of the self-pitying is not really for others to see them as helpless, but as heroes. The need they need self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from an unrecognized worthiness. It is the response of unapplauded pride. When pride is not strong, it begins to worry about the future. In the heart of the proud, anxiety is to the future what self-pity is to the past. What did not go well in the past gives us a sense that we deserve better. But if we could not make things go our way in the past, we may not be able to make it in the future either. Instead of making the proud humble, this possibility makes them anxious. End quote. See, John Piper is drawing attention to the fact that self-pity is dwelling on the past. And the wounded pride that took place back there. What happened that Saul is feeling pity for himself? Well, it's sort of silly, right? I mean, Saul has killed his thousands. David is ten thousands. And remember his bitter jealousy and his envy that just begin to grow and fester. And he began to eye David and be suspect of him. And what happens when you become paranoid like that? Well, you begin to impute motives, don't you? You begin to look at David and you begin to think, he's, I can see it, he's eyeing my throne. He wants what I have. He's going to strip the kingdom from me and my son. I'm not going to let that happen, so I'm going to kill him myself. And over and over and over again, Saul is thwarted in his attempts to snuff out David. And of course, David is doing none of these things. What's David doing? David is being a faithful servant. He's going in and out. He's leading the army. He's being wise. He delivered Israel from the Philistines and from Goliath. He's not trying to kill Saul. But notice he said it twice. He is lying and wait for me as it is this day. He thinks David's out there in the bushes. This is what happens to a leader who's 
filled with self-pity. He begins to be paranoid. He imagines the worst. And of course, at this very moment, when Saul is feeling so sorry for himself, when he's rehearsed all the grievances and how his wounded pride has been hurt, then Doeg steps up. Oh, I saw David. I know where David is. He was just happened to be there. He just happened to be that person that saw David talk to Ahimelech. Did David inquire of the Lord through Ahimelech? No, we had hoped that he would, but he didn't. He had deceived Ahimelech. He said, I am on a mission from the king. And I had to leave in haste, and so I didn't have any food, and I don't have a sword. But really, David wasn't on a mission. He didn't have an army. He was desperate. He was searching for answers. He's trying to figure out, what is my next move? But Saul doesn't know any of that. And so Doeg explains the scene with Ahimelech, adding a little bit of embellishment, right, to inflame Saul so that he will win the favor of Saul. One of the hallmarks of uh, bad leadership is a constantly moving objective that no one can clearly define at any given time. Right? One day David's a hero, and the next day he's an enemy. I mean, the guys are sitting around thinking, like, we used to go out with this guy. I mean, he was great. I would have followed him anywhere. Right? This is the, the uh, warrior par excellence. And now he's... Public enemy number one? I I can't keep up with you, Saul. I can't keep up with the the changing of the goalpost. It's like in George Orwell's 1984. They continually change whether they're at war with Eurasia or East Asia or their enemies or vice versa. You you don't know. In the beginning, they're enemies. But then halfway through, you remember the ceremony and all of a sudden they got new information and they have to change. Now... They're actually their enemies. And you see the absurdity and how they have to rewrite all the history. That's sort of what's happening with David and Saul. David is a hero in Israel. And Saul is acting like a tyrant. So self-pity leads Saul to make a very bad, bad judgment. He calls the house of Ahimelech. And all the priests, 85 priests, they all come from Nob. Nob is a Levitical city that God had set apart in Judah for the Levites to live in. And this um, priestly city where all of the priests and their families live are summoned to the king. And so Ahimelech comes and he says, here I am. And the king condemns him of conspiring against him. Well, we know the truth. Ahimelech did no such conspiring. And he says all the same things I just mentioned. David is your man. Not only is he your man, but he's your son-in-law. You gave him your daughter in marriage. Why would I not trust him? How many times have I inquired of him for you? Many. But you see, Saul, because his pride is wounded, where, where is his focus? Where is he looking? He's not looking objectively at the situation. He's looking at himself. He's looking at his situation, which is put in jeopardy because of David. And so therefore, David needs to go. And anyone who sides with David or 
it seems, sides with David. And so he says in verse 16, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And he snaps his fingers and he expects his troops to descend. But they, they just sit there. This is bizarre. You can't follow a king like this. You can just imagine what's going through their minds as they're, they're thinking, I thought I, I got behind the right guy. This guy is calling us to slaughter the priests of the Lord. These are people, these are men who represent us before God. It'd be like gathering a whole bunch of pastors in the city and then saying, kill them all. It's unthinkable. These people represent the people of God before God. They're in His presence. But Doeg, you see, Doeg's an Edomite. He might not have grown up with that reverence for the priestly office. He's relatively new to the faith, right? He is a newcomer. And whether he is a proselyte that is, uh, he wants to be joined to Israel as a foreigner, or he is just there because the opportunity affords itself and he can advance his own cause. You see, self-pity as a form of pride does what all pride does. It keeps our eyes firmly fixed on ourselves, on me. There are two antidotes to self-pity and the bad judgment that it engenders, humility and contentment. And these go hand in hand with one another. Humility, we might say, is a modest self-perception. You look at yourself circumspectly. Right? You are not thinking too highly of yourself as Saul and even Doag are. But you recognize that I am a person made in the image of God under God. God is the one that my eyes are focused on. See, pride exalts itself and then is humiliated by God. Humility exalts God and is subsequently lifted up above its station. Humility is having a humble estimation of oneself. Pride is having an exaggerated view of oneself. Pride doesn't recognize pride. Paul th- or Saul thinks that he's being humble. Right? He's just persecuting the enemies of God. That's what he's supposed to do, right? This is an enemy. David is an enemy of God. He's got a righteous cause. He has to snuff out this traitor and all those who collude with him. This was common in the ancient world. They would destroy any, anyone who was a traitor and everybody who colluded with them. So he might think that he's, he's doing the Lord's work. But he doesn't realize that the way that God has built the world is that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Perhaps one of the greatest stories in Scripture of this is the story of Esther, the story of Haman and Mordecai. Do you recall that story? How Mordecai had rescued the king from an assassination plot. But the king had a wicked advisor, Haman, who hated Mordecai because Mordecai refused to bow down to him when he passed in the streets. And so he comes up with a plan 
to try to kill all of the Jews. You know the story. He becomes increasingly incensed against this Mordecai, and his wife and his friends tell him, you know what you should do? You should just build this big gallows, 50 feet tall, and you should hang Mordecai on there. And so he summons the courage, he builds the gallow, and then he thinks, okay, I'm going to go ask the king if I can get rid of this traitor, this enemy of the king, this guy who won't bow down to me. See, he's filled with pride. And as soon as he goes in to the king to ask him, can I, can I hang this Mordecai? The king says, what, what should I do for the person that I want to honor the most? If, you, if, if, if there was some person that I just wanted to shower with praise and honor, and, and Haman is there, he's beaming. He's thinking, this is me. Well, what would I want? He says, I want, to, I want to wear your clothes. I want to ride on your horse. I want one of your chief advisors to come and take me through the city and say, this is what the king does for the man that he delights in. And the king says, that's a great idea. And he says, go do it for Mordecai. And Haman is just embarrassed, mortified, he has to take his enemy through the streets with the king's clothes on the king's horse and say, this is what is done for the one whom the king delights in. But it gets worse. Not only is he humiliated, but then the plot that he made to destroy the Jews is uncovered through the mediation of Esther. And in the moment of the greatest poetic justice in history, he is hung upon the gallows that he made for Mordecai. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride will always lead to downfall. It's the original sin. Satan refused to be under God, to have a humility, to recognize that He is not God and submit Himself to Him. And so is cast out of heaven. But what does He do? He entices man to do the same thing. And we, be, we begin to doubt. I don't, I don't know if God is all that good. And so we listen to a lie like Doeg did. We listen to the self-pity of the serpent and his wounded pride. But Jesus provides us the example of humility. We read in that text from the New Testament that Judas came to betray Jesus. And Peter takes out his sword and he cuts off the ear of the servant. And Jesus says, this is not the way. If I wanted, I could call legions of angels down to deliver me. You see, humility is not weakness. Humility is a strength, but it's a recognition that there is a purpose and an end that I need to fulfill, and, I, and I'm not it. And Jesus is humble, and he's content with the situation that God has placed him in. Of course, contentment is a deep satisfaction with the will of God. And that means, of course, a deep satisfaction in whatever situation you find yourself in. And that means that if God determines that He's going to take the kingdom from you and give it to someone else, that you say, I am content with that. Saul did not. 
Saul was grasping. Saul cared more about his kingdom and the advancement of himself than he did about God's kingdom and purposes. He's not content. But neither is Doeg. Doeg doesn't want to just stay the chief shepherd. He wants to be the chief in the land. He wants to move up the ranks. And this is the best way to do it. Contentment isn't resignation to hopelessness. Contentment doesn't mean you don't try to attain to a better situation. But there's a marked difference between the discontent person on the one and the one who is content but always striving to overcome the limitations of their situation. Let me give you an example. Imagine that God has brought you into a season of singleness. You don't want to be single, but you find yourself being single. And so you are praying that the Lord would supply you with a spouse. And you're looking for a spouse. You haven't given up, but you are content in that situation. You're walking through that season in life, hopefully praying that God will answer your prayers and give you a spouse. But but the person who's discontent says, I hate men. There are no good men left. I don't even want to be married. Or whines and complains to everyone about how they can't find a good wife. There's just nobody out there anymore. And you can tell the difference between somebody who's content with their situation, their station in life, although they're striving to overcome that, and somebody who has discontent. And they're blaming God. Saul's self-pity leads him to make a bad judgment, to execute the priests of Nob, Ahimelech. Maybe you're not feeling tempted to go and murder a whole village, but your discontent over the situations might lead you to make similarly bad judgments. Quickest way out of that is to repent of your discontent and pride by taking your eyes off of yourself and your situation and looking to Christ. And what is your ultimate situation? Why has God brought you through this situation that you want to overcome? What is He trying to teach you? What do you need to learn through walking in the wilderness? You can't learn those lessons if you continue to keep your eyes on yourself. If you continue to rehearse over and over again all the bad that's happened in the past that's wounded you. If you rehearse those things, you will become bitter and you'll be filled with self-pity and it'll lead you to make the same kinds of decisions that Saul made. But once you take your eyes off yourself and look to God, once you see Him, you will begin to see yourself rightly. Once you look at Him, you will be humbled because you will see, I am nothing like Him. And then you will see Christ who, although he knew no sin, became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. You will take your eyes off yourself and you will focus on the only one who can overcome any situation you find yourself in. The one who can give you hope when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Who can make you content when you're grieving over the loss of someone you love. They can say, blessed be the Lord. Although you gave and you have taken away. I will bless you. 
because you are content with whatever situation God brings you through. Because you know it comes from the loving hands of a heavenly father who is working all things for your good. But the story is not over because Saul's bad decision leads to treachery. And Doeg has his own set of problems. But they come from the same root. And the antidote is the same. Humility and contentment. It's not really clear why Doeg was detained before the Lord when he was with Ahimelech and when David came there. But what it does suggest is that he was a proselyte. And a proselyte is a foreigner who has joined themselves to Israel. And one of the things that um, this did, what meant, is that they had to keep the law, they had to offer right sacrifices, and they had to be circumcised. Now, we don't know the purpose for why Doeg is at the Lord's tabernacle, being detained before the Lord. But in any case, he should understand the law and know that what he's about to do is not a great decision. But what's true of Doeg is that he is an opportunist. An opportunist uses every means necessary to advance themselves. They show an apparent lack of concern for anyone around them, but are focused intently on accomplishing their goals. Doeg, although all the troops of Saul said, we're not getting our hands dirty with this. Saul, you're off your rocker. No way. We're going after the priests of the Lord? The priests of Yahweh? You've got to be kidding me. Saul says, Doeg, you do it. And what's Doeg do? Yes, sir, I'm ready. Let's get that bonus paycheck. And he goes after him. He slays Ahimelech and 85 priests. But that's not it. Then he goes to the city of Nob and he wipes out everybody in the city. He executes holy war against the citizens of Nob. Man, woman, child. Beasts, everything is devoted to destruction. Which is ironic. Because the very reason that Saul has been rejected as king of Israel is because he refused to do what Doeg did. Remember the story with the Amalekites? God said, I want you to completely wipe them out. Devote every one of them to destruction. This is called harim, holy war, right? This is not something that Israel was called to do for every people, but to execute God's judgment on a particular people and for a particular sin. And so they were to wipe them out. But what does Saul do? He defeats them, but he keeps the best of the livestock and he keeps the king alive. And remember, Samuel says, what is the... What is the sound of this lowing in my ears? And then there comes Agag. Oh, the joy of death. It's past. He's all filled with mirth. Because Saul has spared him. God specifically told him, I want you to execute justice against this people. And he refused to listen to the word of the Lord. And he gets no explicit approval to execute justice on Nob, and he goes all the way. 
Doeg is an opportunist driven by discontent, strongly desiring to advance his position at any cost. There are two characteristics that the discontent opportunist like Doeg has. A lack of discernment and a lack of restraint. Let's look closely at these to understand better the nature of discontent and the difference between being an opportunist, which is sinful, and being a visionary. A lack of discernment is an inability to know the truth from error. Discernment is something that is sharpened, it's honed, where we learn by attending to God in His Word to understand what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. By attending to those things, we conform ourselves to the pattern that God has created the world with. These things are good. These are evil. We flee from them and we go towards the good. Your powers of discernment are sharpened as you continually walk that path, choosing what is good over what is evil. We call that the path of wisdom. Somebody who is wise if they are able to be discerning if they can understand the truth. And the concept of truth is grounded in the idea of dependability or reliability. God is truth. A quality of being trustworthy that can be applied to speech, thought, intent, legal testimony. It describes what is real, what is actual, valid, what's genuine and correct in legal and in ethical contexts. Discernment is a gift of the Spirit, and it's for the mature. You see, the author of Hebrews describes the mature as solid food is for the mature. In chapter 5, verse 14, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see, the discerning person, they hear the call of Saul, and they say, not good, and then you don't choose it, right? That's discernment. You can say, I understand that this is not in accordance with who God is. God would not call us to execute justice on the people of God who have not sinned. Doeg lacks discernment, but he he also lacks restraint, and we saw that in the, in the fact that he is willing to execute holy war against this people, although he has no authorization to do so. You see, the difference between an opportunist and a visionary, an opportunist is pragmatic. He says the ends justify the means. So it doesn't matter what I do. I'm just, I need to get to the top of being with Saul. I need to advance in his ranks. I need to earn his favor. Whatever I have to do to get to that point, I'll do it. And so he makes the sacrifices. He bloodies his hands. And he's willing to so that he can gain favor. The visionary looks for opportunities too, but opportunities to glorify God. He wants to make sure that the means are in line with the ends. That God justifies both. And the end, the ultimate end for all of our pursuits is the glory of God. Now, are these means, the killing of all the priests at Nob, do they coincide with God's ultimate glory? Well, if I answer that question, no, then I should stay quiet 
and not execute judgment that Saul asks. You see, he's not, he's not trained in discernment, and so he's an opportunist. He, he misses that the, the means of advancing his cause don't coincide with the glory of God. And you see, if he would have been content, it would have kept him from seizing opportunities that don't line up with God's glory. David was content. He seized opportunities, but he seized opportunities for the honor and glory of God. Remember what the Philistine Goliath said as he mocked God. And David said, is anybody going to go out and defend God's honor? Saul's definitely not going to. He's only concerned with his own honor. But David goes. He says, I'll go against that Philistine. And I'll cut his head off and feed it to the birds. How dare he defy my God? He is concerned with the honor and glory of God. He has a right end. And so his means line up with that. Doeg doesn't even know what his purpose is. David wasn't anxious about advancement because he's got the proper end. He knows that he wants to glorify God. Whatever happens through that, let the Lord do it. Providentially, one priest, Abiathar, the son of Ahitab, escapes and flees to David. The decision of David to go to Ahimelech, which was ill-conceived, Provisioned the death of all these people. David is a true person. He's a man. We see him with all his foibles and weaknesses, all his failures. Some people don't like to talk about David's failures, but David failed over and over again. David himself talks about it in the Psalms. And David, he said, I knew, I knew that that might happen when I saw Doag there, something in the corner of his eye, just seeing that Doag was there, and he knew this might not be good. What am I doing? David's bad decision may have occasioned this tragedy, but it was carried out through the self-pity of Saul and the treachery of Doag. Rather than cultivating humility and contentment, pride drives Saul and Doag to commit great treachery against the inhabitants of Nob. Humility and contentment are virtues we all want to have, but we don't want to work for them. Pride comes naturally. but Humility and contentment are hard won, chiefly by taking our eyes off of ourselves and fixing them on the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, humble, content to walk the path of suffering, even suffering unto death for the glory that awaited him. He didn't seize it before its time. He was content. He was humble. He could have rebuked any leader. He could have went straight to Caesar and rebuked him. But he was humble. He walked in our shoes. He felt the pain and suffering of this world. And he was content resting in your perfect plan. Father, would you make us like Christ? That we would cultivate humility as we fix our eyes upon him. 
and as we are content with the situations that you make us to walk through, that we would learn the lessons of relying and trusting in Christ alone. For we pray this in his name.